<laughs> you know Christ. Woo! Okay, everybody, it is episode 10 of Wrapped in Podcast. We're going to talk about part 10 of Twin Peaks The Return, Laura is the One. Kyle, how are you doing? Uh, I am well, and I prepared for this examination of part 10 by stripping to the waist. So I would ask our listeners when tweeting about this episode to use hashtag shirtless Kyle. Thank you. Ken, how are you doing? I'm doing well. I thought that cold open with Aria killing all of the phrase was really cool. I really enjoyed that. It set the season off really well. I thought that's uh, that's the right show, right? That's what we're here to talk about. It's true that the North remembers. Jeff, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing well. It's been a beautiful day. So I think I'm going to have another donut and uh, intercept some mail from the U.S. Postal Service. <laughs> And I'm excited to welcome to the podcast for the first time, uh, Connor Kilpatrick, who we've been talking to about participating for a while now, but through various things going on, most recently a trip to Italy, he hasn't been able to come on. Connor is an internet personality, a writer and editor at Jacobin Magazine, uh, a film fan. He wrote a great review of Man of Steel for Jacobin's website, and he also... Uh, is a big David Lynch fan. So welcome to the show, Connor. How are you doing? And tell us about your relationship with David Lynch. Oh, I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Um, my relationship to David Lynch is, uh, it actually took me uh, a kind of a while to get into him compared to other directors. Um, I first started getting really into film in junior high and, you know, and this was in the 90s. So all my guidebooks and everything said I had to check out David Lynch. And the first uh, time I watched Blue Velvet, um, I liked it okay, but I, I didn't seem to to, to get it. Um, but I later realized that was because uh, I was a virgin. And you can't <laughs> understand David Lynch or a movie like Blue Velvet until you have uh, you know, shed your your the boyish ways of, of, of childhood, I think. But no, so since then... Uh, I become something of a David Lynch uh, fanatic, uh, and uh, I'm a huge fan of his. And uh, yeah, I, I, I'm someone who was anxiously awaiting Twin Peaks for many years. Twin Peaks was a show that was on when I was like about nine years old, and I wasn't allowed to watch it. I just had this the impression from trailers that you would see on TV that it was a it was sexy, it was violent, and it was horrific. I remember seeing a lot of uh, teasers with Bob before I even knew who Bob was. I didn't actually end up watching Twin Peaks until um, I moved to New York in my mid twenties, and I watched it all on DVD and just one quick blitz in the mid two thousands. And since then, I, I I've just been following. For years, any tidbit rumor of a Twin Peaks season three. Uh, so the fact that it actually has happened and we're wa- watching it and talking about it now is is a dream come true. What a wonderful time to be alive. It really is. Question for Connor, since you mentioned him going to Italy. While he was in Italy, did he visit his family Palazzo? And had there been additional rooms added on so seamlessly that it didn't appear to be added on to the original construction? And did he embrace anyone while he was there? <laughs> no, I, I did not get a chance to do such a thing. Ah, darn. Okay. Oh, well, still cool you went to Italy, though. It was. It was, it was a wonderful trip. Okay, so to start this episode, Laura is the one. We see an old car 
painted in a hodgepodge of colors pull up to a trailer in a fairly bucolic setting next to a large barn. There are a lot of Christmas decorations, even though it's September. Uh, and I think, Jeff, you had some uh, something to identify about the car. Uh, this car looks to be a Saturn. Uh, the lamp on the table beside Cooper in the red room is a Saturn lamp. And when Jupiter and Saturn are conjunct, Glastonbury Grove may open. Oh, my God. I'm just so <laughs> – I'm, I'm very impressed. Yeah, and also relevant to Jupiter – You'll recall that in episode eight, where we were in the White Lodge or the building that appeared to be the White Lodge in the room where Senorita Dido was listening to music, the artist formerly known as the Giant, um, possibly known as the Fireman, was there with that bell-like structure. The carpet on the floor of that room looked like the surface of Jupiter. Really? Oh, right. Yeah. Oh, God. I've seen the episode three times and I haven't Mm. noticed that. I need to give it another go. Uh, my immediate uh, thing I, I've noticed in the beginning of this, sh- this episode is something that's been very jarring for me for this entire season is that we're seeing Twin Peaks in what looks like, I know they said it's um, September, but it looks like basically uh, p- the Pacific Northwest in the this tiny little slice of time in which it's actually uh, sunny and beautiful and very optimistic and positive looking it's not gloomy like twin i mean the opening shot of uh, the original twin peaks of the pilot was a gloomy morning cloudy gray and that's kind of like the images i always associate with with the show so it's, it's very strange this new season to have it not only the starkness of digital but the fact that he's filming in the that rare that window of time in, in the pacific northwest when it's just so bright it's very strange yeah i think that some of that may be that a lot of the shooting was done in Southern California, although that could have been the shots in Las Vegas and Buckhorn. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Well, they filmed the original series, right? Like, they only did the pilot in, in Washington, and the rest was done just north of L.A., but they, I think they adjusted the lighting to make sure it never looked too, uh, too bright. So it's really strange to see how bright the, the, the on-location shooting is in, in this season. Yeah, the list of recitations at the end of the credits of each episode is fairly long, and it looks like they took advantage of a variety of tax credits. So they're technically filmed in (laughs) Southern California and Washington State and France, and they just have to say the right thing about each one. So back to this scene. Richard Horn has arrived to intimidate Miriam, uh, the woman who uh, is a big fan of the pies at the Double R Diner. Uh, She likes her Christmas decorations at her trailer, but she's not happy to see Richard Horn, who's asking her uh, about what she knows and who she told. She tells him to go away and that she already told the police and she wrote a letter to the sheriff. I thought this was a little weird. Like, who exactly did she tell the police? Uh, Possibly Andy. That would make some sense, given his investigation earlier in the middle of the road, looking at his watch. Yeah, I assume that's what Andy was doing in that scene. And maybe Chad just intercepted everything. What what I noticed in this was Miriam was very clear in distinguishing between law enforcement agencies. She said she told the police, but that she wrote a letter to the sheriff. 
And, and I don't ever recall there having been a separate police force in Twin Peaks. Uh, but, but it sounds like she may have actually talked to a different law enforcement agency and when they didn't act, wrote a letter to Sheriff Truman, which frankly is what she should have done in the first place. Well, this actually just reminds me of the, one of the strange things about the season compared to the original is the character of Chad and uh, this idea of the police as being a corrupted force. The original Twin Peaks was far more kind of uh, of a kind of 1950s attitude towards police and law enforcement that it was this kind of untouchable, good, um, un- incorruptible force. So it's interesting the introduction of things like uh, of characters like Chad. But it, it, it to me it just reminds me what's another thing that's really strange about this season is how much it seems Lynch wants to make us feel that we are watching a show that takes place in uh, 2010s USA, in post-crash United States. And I I can't for the life of me think of a single reference in the original Twin Peaks to something going on in the late 1980s or early 1990s. I mean, maybe I'm forgetting something. But uh, the references to the Iraq War, uh, the references in the the Dougie scenes to uh, all the Las Vegas, the, the the little McMansion suburb in which all the homes are foreclosed on. Uh, so the idea of like a corrupt police unit seems to be it's just so very very different than, than the the feeling that Lynch was going for in the original. And I guess you know the cinematography actually reflects that too. Everything looking so bright and uh, high contrast and almost garish compared to the the moody film look of, of the original. I was just thinking about the sh- the shots of, of that that opening was just uh, I was just kept thinking of how bright it looked when it was such a horrific incident happening. Yeah, speaking of shots, you can see there's this neat shot where uh, Miriam's behind the window of her front door and there's this image below her and it's actually Richard's head reflecting back, but it's it's hard to tell. It looks almost like a poster beneath her head. Yeah, the way that it's shot, his reflection looks a lot more prominent in the window than Miriam does behind it. So you see him in the foreground and her much fainter behind him and above him because she's taller and he's standing a ways off. So it's it's really cool looking, but it is disorienting at first. It took me a minute, too, to be like, wait, which person is in what spot? Because you're thinking about the person being behind the door who's delivering the lines, right? So you're looking for her, but you're seeing him mostly. Yeah, it was a dis- it was going to say it was, it was like a seemed like a classic kind of horror movie shot the reflection of the boogeyman you know sort of like it, it seemed like something a, from a Halloween movie where you just see kind of the pale face of Michael Myers in a reflection you know so yeah I really dug it I thought it was really cool yeah or a very old portrait where she's like a, a sainted ancestor or something in the background above someone. Right. Yeah, it's almost a palimpsest sort of look, like she's the faded image and you've got the, the what looked to me like a child in the foreground. Isn't that one of our drinking game words? Are we supposed to drink <laughs> when you say palimpsest? So anyway, after Richard confronts Miriam, he goes into the trailer. We off screen, we hear from outside the trailer him hit her several times, leaves her face down, still breathing, but with blood pooling. A candle is lit. And the gas is on, so she may not be doing very well. We go from here to the new Fat Trout trailer park where Carl Rod is singing Red River Valley Valley and playing an acoustic guitar. This is interrupted by shouting from a trailer and a red copy cup flying through the air. Carl pronounces it a fucking nightmare. 
Yeah, and this is two episodes in a row. We've got red coffee mugs. This one comes flying through the window and lands in the grass. You've got Carl sitting there, you know, amidst all this greenery, and he's got his cup of Good Morning America on a red cooler. So you got all this red green stuff going on that we had from the last episode. And then when he says his comment about it being a nightmare, he looks straight out at the audience through the camera, uh, much like Frank Booth looked out at the audience in uh, in Blue Velvet. So I, I think his commentary is sort of being directed not just at life in general, but at us specifically. You know, that was actually a great scene because that, that's one ca- scene or character, the uh, Amanda, how do you pronounce her name? Sef- Seyfried? Seyfried. Amanda Seyfried's boyfriend is a far more convincing, abusive, asshole boyfriend than, I'm sorry to say this, than Leo ever was, Leo Johnson. He's Leo Johnson was never truly terrifying in the way that already uh this this new redheaded kid is he's terrible and he's scummy and i hated him immediately uh it's hard for me to think of leo as not frightening i think because i was young enough when i first saw those scenes right like it it does still exert a certain part. i mean he's fundamentally ridiculous later in the series but the actor's a pretty big imposing dude and uh the scenes still sort of resonate when i watch them yeah i want to echo that ken i found leo uh, particularly terrifying as a 12 year old uh watching the show for the first time when he was putting the soap in the sock and swinging it around. But, uh, you know, we've talked about generational decay in this show before in Twin Peaks. And I think we see that here because, you know, uh, you know, Leo was a bad dude, but at least he could hold down two different jobs. I mean, he was a long haul truck driver as well as a drug trafficker. Steven has got no job whatsoever. (laughs) Say what you will. He was a breadwinner. A young entrepreneur, whereas this kid can't even fill out a. What did they say? He he did a, he turned in a resume, and the guy was like, "Your formatting is all incorrect." That was that. That was actually that kind of that that really got to me in, in a and certain st- way. I don't know. That, that was. And could Stephen at least? Could Stephen at least <laughs> blow his nose for crying no. out loud? He blows it into that. He blows in that horrendous teen stash that he has. That's really the thing that makes him more horrifying <laughs> kid, than Leo. You recognize that guy, by the way. He's the guy that yes. was played Banshee yeah, no, the, in X-Men First Class. And he was the little kid in No Country for Old Men who helped Anton Shiger out after he got hit by a car and said, you got a fucking bone sticking out of your arm, mister. Yeah, and we talked about this when he first appeared, but he's the shitty MMA-loving brother in Get Out. I mean, yeah. all the white people in Get Out are shitty. I think this but kid's a great actor. I, I, I truly despise him, so he's doing something He's doing something great. Yeah, he's great at making me despise his characters. Right. That's definitely true. This Leo versus Steven distinction brings up something I talked about, I think, way back in like episode one, where... Uh, I was mentioning David Chase trying to convince people that Tony Soprano wasn't likable, that people kept liking him just because he was the protagonist of the series and he was very charismatic. And so Chase had to make him more and more sociopathic all the time. It feels like this generational decay might be kind of a function of that. Uh, I'm just brought to mind or put in mind of this magazine cover that we tweeted about uh, on our Twitter feed and uh, in which people refer to the Shelley and Leo Johnson characters with the caption, true love never dies, 
which I, I just right. thought was so horrifying. And yeah. then I, I looked this up to see if there are people <laughs> out there that actually, you know, think that this was a an okay relationship in some way or that it was a certain kind of true love. And the answer was uh, a lot of Italians. There was a, a huge Italian Twin Peaks fan community that thinks that, well, you know, it's just Uh-oh. an extremely Sorry passionate relationship. Just an extremely fiery and extremely passionate relationship. And yeah, it's, it's beyond problematic. And so I sort of wondered if somehow that had come across Lynch's transom and if he had seen that kind of thing and thought, I have to make something that's even more unequivocally horrible for people to believe this is abuse well, and not I'm, true I'm love. Gonna, I'm going to go ahead and, and want to believe the best of my uh, my my Italian comrades, and I'm going to go ahead and say they were attracted to they were attracted to Leo's <laughs> Sorry, Italy. very sexy ponytail with one little strand hanging out in front on his forehead. I think I think that was the Italian male uh, affinity for Leo. I want to I want to. I want to believe it was. Yeah, Leo was the proto-Furio with his ponytail. <laughs> True love for a rat tail never dies. It was. It was. I could see Leo on a moped. Yeah, so anyway, Steven's really awful and really, really high. Yeah, he's, re- he's really high and really awful, and I want to talk about how uh, upsetting this scene was. But we have Connor here, and uh, the uh, there is an economic analysis to this scene, right? The... Um, what he's doing is he's yelling at her for not making more money at her job while he is completely incapable of getting one. He keeps shouting how he's not, you know, he's he can't be expected to do this thing and she should be making more money at the diner and she should be supporting them better in a way of deflecting his compromised masculinity from his unemployability, which could be an after the crash sort of a commentary, I suspect, uh, or it could just be this guy being a horrible person. Hey, I think there's a good Jackman article right there. No, I, I, I actually... I'm here for you. I completely agree. And that just gets back to what I was saying earlier, how it's really, to me, it's just really strange how much this season takes place in the contemporary United States right now uh, in in a post-crash society. It's, it's, uh, it's just very striking in every way. Yeah. I think it's safe to say Engels would not like Steven. No, no. (laughs) So we go from here to Las Vegas, where we're going to see our two uh, new favorite characters. The Mitchum brothers. Yeah, they they really are something, and I enjoy them immensely this episode. Oh, they're great. They uh, so what we have is Rodney is is sitting there, and he it's hilarious because he's he's checking these security logs, like security camera logs, and he's intensely looking at them, and then just making a check on all these lines, which is like absurd. Like what 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 he what could he actually be doing or checking as he's doing this work? But he's very intently doing it. At the same time. We see one of the uh, can- one of the showgirls in pink that we saw previously. This one's named Candy, and she's sort of like very awkwardly walking in her high heels, but at the same time she's trying to get this fly, uh, and she's not like Mister Miyagi. Uh, she can't do it with chopsticks. Uh, she's uh, <laughs> first she tries to do it with with a napkin, uh, and then finally she puts a napkin down and she picks up this TV remote control, uh, and she's trying swinging at through the air trying to get the fly and the whole time you know you get this anticipation because she gets close and closer to rodney that she's gonna belt rodney with it and of course she does and it's this very intense moment with this like you know classic david lynch ugly crying from her she's so upset about having hit him and you know immediately uh rodney's brother bradley who is always like these are this is a strange like brother relationship they're always like i don't know like two or three yards away from each other at all times but anyway <laughs> he comes in and uh and rodney is kind of uh 
comforting him uh, and letting him know that it's okay, it's okay, and and you know they don't want any any blame to come down on Candy, but she is definitely blaming herself. She's she's just completely unloading, you know, crying, terrified about what had just happened. It was a weird scene. I loved how patient they were with her and understanding. He was just kind of like, why did you do that? It, it wasn't like they were presented as these really scary, uh, you know, heavies, but no, they have, they, they have a soft spot for candy. And later he says like, she has nowhere else to go after she messes up. Like <laughs> they're very considerate, tough guys. One again, just because I can't let go of the color scheme, they got green stools. She, of course, has a red napkin that Jr. as you pointed out, looks a lot like the red bandana that marked the farm for Doppelcooper. And and this is the beginning of uh, this is the first introduction of of pink. She's of course wearing pink, and there's pink scattered throughout this episode. And as we all know, pink is like red, but not quite. And I just like to say that uh, Candy hit Rodney with a TV remote. Uh, and that later on, uh, doc, is it Dr. Amp, uh, tells us to stop just, you know, destructing ourselves, destroying ourselves, all these distractions, you know? So that was, that was a, one of the, the meta moments, uh, in the, in the episode. <laughs> the TV remote is so prominent in various shots in the Mitchum brothers residence that I started to think it was product placed like the liquor bottles the showgirls are using, which have all their labels turned prominently toward the camera. It really seemed like they were doing like an Xfinity, whatever, whatever new DVR kind of a product placement thing. Plus they have this giant TV. I thought I noticed some Jack Daniels product placement because there's a, the woman in the Vegas suburb who was screaming numbers and shooting up drugs. She's constantly pouring Jack Daniels. And then uh, Ike the Spike was doing the same thing. He had a bottle of Jack Daniels and kept pouring it. I just, I love that Lynch just thinks, you know, this is what CD people do. They sit with a bottle of Jack Daniels and pour it slowly. Right. First of all, step off of Ken's beverage corner. <laughs> second of all, um, second of all, Ike the Spike has bullet bourbon in one scene and Evan Williams in another. Are you serious? And there are some very. <laughs> Yes, and there are some very <laughs> oh, strong sorry, opinions sorry. about Evan Williams around this podcast. I love those, which has caused bourbon. quite a lot of controversy. A lot of folks on the Facebook calling us out about my opinions on Evan Williams. So, yeah. Well, Evan Williams bottles do kind of look like Jack Daniels, so that's understandable. Well, yeah. Oh, totally. Right. Well, the Evan Williams bottle is kind of square and it's black. But but Evan Williams Evan Williams does deliberately try and make it look like a Jack Daniels bottle. I mean that's uh, that seems pretty pretty purposeful on their part. Yeah, I think the Evan Williams black and white color scheme is is kind of intentional, and it is sort of square. So that that confusion is understandable. But look, we we have a whole beat dedicated to this, Connor. That's that's what I'm here for. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> sorry, <laughs> sorry for the retread. Dougie, Dougie Jones does love some Mrs. Vicky's chips, though, uh, and I fully like suspect Kyle MacLachlan is promoting those like in Japan right now when he's, you know. Okay, so this means that Mrs. Vicky's chips are the doppelganger of Fritos or vice versa. Uh, that's my new theory this week. Uh, anyway, uh, Dougie's at a general practitioner, not a neurologist. I don't know why. <laughs> Let's hear it to the general practitioners of America. I like I like that. I like that. <laughs> I mean, yeah, no, he clearly should be seen by a specialist, not a GP. But anyway, he's being examined, and I want to address a controversy on the show. Uh, previously, uh, I've been uh, griped at on the internet 
because I said that when Mr. C looked in the mirror and we saw that hint of Bob in his face that I didn't think it was CGI. Well, I mean, I wasn't certain. I don't know. But I was so caught up in Kyle McLaughlin's performance. I said, no, I thought he, he, he could do it himself. But in this episode, I do think that there is some CGI used uh, in the depiction of Kyle McLaughlin's torso. Oh, oh. Wow. I don't believe that for one moment. <laughs> wow, sir. haters. I think, I think Kyle yeah. earned it. Yeah. Haters. But he has that, that air about himself as someone who's like a gym rat. You know? He's very polished. He's very has good posture. He's raised in a very waspy household. Spends all day out in the vineyards, dealing yeah. with wine, outdoors. Right. Getting some reps in. Right. Yeah. Oh, my God. A, a friend of my brother's went to his recent wine event in Brooklyn, and she spoke to him briefly. And it was just hearing the, what his, the manner of speech and everything. He is very close to Dale Cooper. I really think it's a pretty close uh, uh, likeness there. Pursued by Bear Wines. He's just a very chipper polished individual in this doctor's defense what exactly is the sort of physiological test to determine whether someone is you know um replacing a doppelganger you know came from 25 years in another dimension through an electrical outlet minus shoes i mean you know there's there's only so much this 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 doctor could do you want to sniff for for garmin bosia i guess is the first thing exactly so as soon as uh Dougie's got his shirt off. Uh, Jenny E has got animal lust. Uh, yeah, she is getting very, very randy. It just it just reinforced my unpopular view that I I'm not sure I want Agent Cooper to fully come back. I think that Dougie Jones is working out for everybody. He's working out for his insurance company. He's catching fraud. He's rekindling the romance in this manufactured man's life he's a, he's a clearly a, an important presence to a young boy sunny jim so it just it, like i said it just made me realize that i think that that maybe this is the the way that dale cooper is best serving society yeah that's crazy i i remain <laughs> uh it's crazy he's just a really <laughs> handsome man yeah and that's great yeah yeah, I know. I I remain yeah. basically exhausted by Dougie Jones. No. Just basically not not on board at all. Even after a couple episodes, where I was feeling a little bit more positively di- uh, disposed. Yeah, not not on board. I'm not. Oh, um, wow. And yeah, and I think this episode is is out to get me specifically. I feel like this is really there specifically to torment me because there's a lot of Dougie stuff that's supposed to be really funny it's but all isn't. Great. There's. Oh my god, there is so much brutalizing of women from like the first couple of scenes, especially and right up through like the the torment of uh of poor Sylvia Horn. And uh yeah, it's just it's 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 all very it, it feels directed, it feels hateful towards me. Oh, and of course the they put Amanda Seyfried, who I've been begging for them to bring back, uh for weeks and weeks. They put her through all of this stuff. And I have to sit here watching Kyle McLaughlin, who's like what, fifteen years older than me, take his shirt off and seeing my wife make that same look that naomi watts made with a little little upturned corner oh, of the smile good. and gasping oh he's fit not fair i think he's watching this in my life we actually looked up to see i think he's 57 or 58 years old i believe yeah believe me adrian looked it up right away ken you you have nothing to complain about okay i i'm the one who's who's getting the you know the image issues because now people have a really unrealistic idea of middle-aged guys <laughs> named kyle yeah. Okay, it's, it's true, but we've already established that he's the better Kyle, Kyle, by your own <laughs> by your own estimation. Right, right. So this just <laughs> proves me right. 
So as a as a balding man, I can't let it not I can't let it go without saying that he also has unnaturally well preserved hairline. His hair is just is just immaculate and amazing, and I would I would I would kill for it. So that that's there's that as well. I just want his blood pressure number. That's that's all I'd settle for. <laughs> I'm just amazed. So is everyone? Is any? Am I the only Dougie lover on this podcast? No, I'm the outlier. I I'm I am like a thousand percent pro pro Dougie. I can't Ken's against Dougie. So we think we want Agent. I mean, I'm telling you, I think we think we want Agent Cooper to jump back and be his old self. I don't I don't know if we really want that. I think this is a a better way to deal with expectations. And I, I was realizing this episode that Gordon has basically become the Dale Cooper. And I kind of like that. <laughs> no, that's true. But I, I actually hate that too. Ken, if you, if you, if you, if you saw yeah. the glory of the there way you of Dougie, your, your blood pressure would go down naturally that's to 110 it. over 70. It would just happen. And, and Naomi Watts would sleep with me. So it would all work out. Yeah. Dougie has figured things out, people. He's figured <laughs> things out. I, my favorite detail of that scene was his arms were kind of like in a Christ-like spread, and they were like flopping up and down as she like bounced on him. It was it was a great detail. <laughs> yeah, so let's break from the actual order of the show. We'll, we'll stay with uh, Dougie and Janie E. They're back in their house. Uh, Dougie is eating very intently some chocolate cake, <laughs> and uh, yeah, Janie E. is on the prowl. <laughs> Uh, she is, uh, you know, asking him, Dougie, if she finds him attractive, says that she finds him attractive. Uh, and, you know, the scene is set for them to head upstairs for... Um, I believe the sociological <laughs> term is cougar. Yes, that's right. She's found her prey and is bringing him upstairs. Dougie was just shoveling that cake down, too. He was not going to... He was going to finish that cake before anything else happened. It's almost as good as if he was eating from like a little baggie of of goldfish crackers. It's a it's a great childish like thing to be eating. Also, red shoes, red chair, pink sweater, pink shirt. She's wearing pink. She's wearing shirt a pink now? shirt and a pink sweater. They prominently display the red shoes, which of course second episode in a row that we've got red shoes, and she. Sitting in a red chair, second episode in a row, we've gotten a significant red chair reference. So there you go, for whatever that's worth. Yeah, and this this scene really, really drives home the Zalman King connection I tried to make last week. This, we really get some red shoe diary stuff after our red shoes. <laughs> right. Yes. David Duchovny was an alumnus of both shows. Yeah. So. History's finest acting robot. So this seems a little bit problematic, right? It's a, it's a bit of an ethical quandary, though, considering his... Uh, incapacitation right so. can, i mean can dougie actually consent to what's going on here no i don't All think right, so if you like this scene you are a rape apologist <laughs> definitely 100 <laughs> percent. wait that's that's actually a good point though i i'm reminded of this thing i read about chris cornell right after he died that was a recollection of a show that he did in seattle right after soundgarden that they did in seattle right after soundgarden was getting big where a female fan leaped on stage during a song grabbed cornell and like kissed him on the mouth and like ran off and after the song he was like look uh it's it's all cool and we're all having a good time but i just want to point out if i were a chick and that was a dude that would be really gross i had no idea that that had happened it's, that's actually there are far more sexually graphic version of that happened at a Danny Brown concert and I remember people were were debating the moral implications of that well just just a, a few observations on the scene itself uh, number one we always knew Dougie was a screw up number two oh. I was gonna let that sit there for oh a minute. my god 
The the scene cuts back and forth to Sonny Jim's room, and I think that's intended to call attention to the fact that when she was decorating her son's room, Janie E. chose to do it in a cowboy motif, so it stands to reason that in her own bedroom, she would elect to do it cowgirl style, although, <laughs> although it's somewhat surprising because... I figured Janie E. would like it Dougie style. So really, I guess the ultimate message of this scene is just love the Doug. You know what? Jesus. This is, this is great. Oh, We've broken Kyle. The show has broken Kyle. All I can think Kyle. about when we're seeing Dougie have sex is just a couple episodes ago, he's gra- he's holding his, his dick in his hand and going, mm, making this noise because he has to pee. So it's just kind of strange to be watching him him have a sexual conquest just a few episodes later but good for dougie it's it's a growth well it's kind of the same expression on his face both times when he's peeing for the first time when he has coffee for the first time and then when he reaches uh, orgasm for the first time (laughs) they're all kind of the same face the the (laughs) hi face (laughs) and and this goes back to my kind of you know enjoying the dougie scenes for like this weird reflection of just the strangeness of being a human in a body and like dealing with functions and just him discovering things and that that's why i love dougie i i, I like him he's a he's a wonderful character it's wonderful to watch dougie enjoy life and enjoy the senses i don't want i don't want dale cooper to come back maybe, maybe the last episode i want i want dougie for the whole ride you may not want to use that expression connor <laughs> <laughs> Kyle, we're gonna get you a soundboard like at a morning zoo sort of a radio station, so you could just like make the double entendres that play like ooga, <laughs> baba booey, baba yes. booey, baba booey, baba booey. We need those sound effects, Doctor Amp has, yeah, for this show. So where are we in the plot rundown? So we've got the doctor's visit, right? So let's go back to the Mitchum residence. Uh, Candy's crying in the corner. Ronnie's drinking a drink. Uh, the other two showgirls, their names are Sandy and Mandy. They're serving drinks. So since we're talking about drinks, maybe this is a good time for Ken's Beverage Corner to commence. Well, it can be. We're we're doing some skipping around anyway. The the labels aren't visible on the bottles until later, but we can talk about it now. They they make it really clear that um, our boy Brad here drinks whiskey straight, uh, or rather that he drinks whiskey on the rocks. His brand appears to be Gentleman Jack, and they very prominently feature the label of the Gentleman Jack bottle. They keep giving these martini-looking drinks to Rodney, but it's there's no way that they're actually a martini, or rather, I mean, there's no way that they're actually made from the other bottles that are on the bar. So somebody sent the props people out to get three bottles, I think, which is to say whiskey to be poured over ice and ingredients for martinis. And the prop person brought back gin, aviation gin from Portland, to be specific, and sweet vermouth. So gin and vermouth, but it's the wrong vermouth. So there's this martini and Rossi bright red, well, green bottle with red vermouth in it, uh, which is just wrong. You cannot make a transparent dry martini or any sort of uh, martini as we conceive of them from gin and sweet vermouth. You can make a drink called a sweet martini. There are martinis, dry martinis, sweet martinis, and the lovely hybrid of the two called a perfect martini, which is sort of an inelegant term of art that makes it very hard to order in bars where people don't know exactly where these terms come from. 
because you say I'd like a perfect martini and people say, right, all of mine are perfect. Okay. Anyway, the point is that it's it's not a drink anybody drinks, right? Gin and sweet vermouth. At some point in history, somebody probably did it, but it doesn't happen now. So naturally, this bothered me inordinately much to see those two bottles and the drinks that were purportedly made from the two of those being shuttled out back and forth to Rodney from the bar by uh, either Sandy or Mandy. Candy is usually in the corner sobbing during these scenes. Uh, this has been a very irked and annoyed Ken's beverage corner. <laughs> I'm kind of tempted when this is over to go try gin and sweet vermouth and see if I can find a way to make it palatable. Sounds kind of disgusting. It would depend on the vermouth, but you could do it. You could you could make it work. It's just that literally nobody does. It's it's a ludicrous thing to have. I actually remember show. now that I recall when I was watching, I was struck by the the sweet vermouth. I just because it, it kind of looked like I was making a Manhattan or something. But he definitely was not drinking. He was drinking a transparent beverage. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, several of them again and again with, with olives oh. and everything. So it's completely ridiculous. ridiculous. Yeah, at first I was like, oh, maybe uh, maybe Brad just drinks the the uh, the Gentleman Jack Tennessee whiskey with the um, with the sweet vermouth in a in a Manhattan type uh, arrangement. But no, that's not what's going on. And so in this scene, uh, what we find out is that uh, the Ike the Spike has been caught. He's on the news being caught. And Rodney and Brad, you know, they have this great exchange. You know, they got Ike. No shit, that asshole. Ike finally stepped on his dick. And Rodney says, remind me to call off that hit on Ike. And, you know, they they do this kind of fist bump. They're super psyched that they don't get have to, you know, they're saving some money now that they don't have to put that hit out on Ike. You know, I really like these characters for some reason. I, they, they're really quite a pair and uh, they've got this – you know, sort of fraternal glee to them that uh, reminds me of the original series in a certain way. Now that I think about it, they've kind of taken over the role of the Horn Brothers, the original Horn Brothers, the the more the more evil Horn Brothers. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, the the Ben seems to have redeemed himself. Jerry is uh, not as you know active as he used to be. I see. I see the similarity here. Even having. Well, as I say, even Candy and the girls it kind of remind me of the One-Eyed Jacks girls, you know, kind of being around. I'd just like to – I might be uh, zeroing in on Kyle's territory here, but last week he did such a good job, and several weeks now, talking about the doubling and the tripling. Uh, and last week we talked about, you know, the two Coopers versus the three Coopers and so forth. But again, in, in this scene, the two brothers and then the three, you know, Candy, Mandy, right. and Sandy. I noticed the doubling and the tripling right. again in this scene. Well, and there's three Fusco brothers in Vegas, too, right? right? Three, exactly. Three showgirls, right. three Fuscos. And so this being one of those episodes where things start to come together, we finally get somebody watching what happened to Dougie uh, with Ike on TV uh, being watched uh, on TV. Uh, <clears throat> we saw them being interviewed weeks before, but now, uh, now with Rodney and Brad watching – the screen, they discover that their Mr. Jones is actually Mr. Jones. And, uh, you know, Candy is still wondering how they, Rodney can ever love her after what she did. And that's basically the end of that scene. We go from there to uh, Dr. Amp, who's broadcasting again. And, you know, the fucks are at it again. We, uh, he talks about, you know, these fucks and the government shouldn't care about who we marry. 
Um, I know, Ken, you thought that Dr. Amp was a full InfoWars right winger, but doesn't look like that's the case, huh? Yeah, I think I was wrong about that. Uh, he looks like he may be an anti-vaxxer. Oh, for sure. But, uh, you know, he's he's not quite as uh, right wing as some of us may have thought. I almost wonder if he's kind of supposed to be David Lynch kind of mocking himself. I mean, he kind of reminds me of David Lynch doing the weather reports on his uh, his his website and running a, his you know web business. I couldn't help but think that there was some similarities there. And Lynch kind of has – I wouldn't. he's not like a – kooky politics guy but he's got that kind of populist uh anti-corporate kind of side to him we also see nadine watching or listening to dr amp while drinking some sort of smoothie i assume is from dr amp supplements well yeah except it shows up yeah except it shows up on sylvia horn's table later too she's got like a pink milkshake also so it's some kind of trendy twin peaks thing maybe the double r makes really good strawberry milkshakes now or maybe they opened a jamba right before they cut they cut away from her she says what a beautiful man or something like that. Oh, yeah, he's so beautiful. That's so great. Yeah. I, th- to me, this is this is the second best episode of the season, third best at worst. Uh, it was fantastic. Yeah, I agree with you, Connor. This is one of the best episodes. We also, you know, uh, I think uh, we talked about how some of the characters left in Twin Peaks, their life seemed demonstrably better or worse. It does seem like Nadine has, we get, you know, to see run, silent, run, drape. Uh, (laughs) And it looks like she has a successful business. And I love the shot of the outside, you know, the exterior of her store. I said it kind of looked like, you know, like an Edward Hooper painting or something. And then she has the golden shovel, you know, uh, uh, hanging in the window. The drapes kind of silently running back and forth. Uh, It was beautiful. And I was... I was glad Nadine I was running a successful business, and what a great name, Run Silent Run. Do we Run know Davis. for a fact that she's still right. with Ed? Right. Uh, we don't technically know that. We don't know anything yeah, about that yet. Yeah. Yeah. He's in one of the trailers, so he we've seen what he's going to look like. Yeah. Yeah, but we don't know who he's with, and and yeah, Jeff, I I totally agree with you. I love everything about that. The you know the silent drape runner. I mean, that's what she wanted to do, whether she's succeeding at it or not. I mean, she is she is literally living the dream like no one else there. And you've got this you know these gently moving drapes uh, that of course remind us of the Black Lodge. And there's a golden shovel. And of course, we've already been we've told that it's designed to enable us to dig our way out of of the mendacity, the uh, what Major Briggs would call the uh, the secrets, not the mysteries. And of course, uh, we're now seeing gold in a very different light from when we first saw this shovel because uh, episode eight saw Laura emerging in this golden orb, presumably to to save the world in you know some some rather Jesus like imagery. And you you couple that with Laura's and Leland's comments in the premiere, and and you're starting to get the suggestion pretty strongly that the return in Twin Peaks, the return is the return of Laura Palmer. And and if a resurrection is in order, I mean we saw her body buried, so isn't at least metaphorically a golden shovel the proper implement with which to exhume her. You know, Ken's talked about the fridging. Maybe we're about to get a thawing. I definitely, I definitely think that Laura Palmer is going to play a really prominent role in the last few episodes. And I'm not just saying that because I was a typical internet junkie and did click on one of the few leaked uh, on-set videos that did show a scene with Laura Palmer. So... I, I still, uh, especially after the, you know, the title of this episode and the log lady's kind of final speech, I think it's going to take Laura Palmer in whatever way she appears to kind of finally wake uh, Agent Cooper up. 
Uh, so yeah, yeah that, that's what I, I think it's, it's the two of them kind of coming together that will be uh, responsible uh, for his awakening. Here's an idea. Will it maybe be the scene, the first Red Room scene in Twin Peaks where Dale appears as an old man and it, the scene ends with her getting up and kissing him? Maybe that has technically not happened yet. I don't know. Like in the, this continuity. I, 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 how do you guys feel about the fact that the, the, the last episode kind of made it clear that Lara and Bob were just of elemental importance, not only to this new season, but to the entire universe of Twin Peaks. How do you guys feel about that? I thought it was in keeping with, um, I sort of feel like Lynch and Fire Walk With Me, you know, as well as, you know, probably to a lesser extent, uh, the last episode of season two, he kind of took over the mythology. But I, I sort of feel like, the you know, the very, very end of Fire Walk With Me and sort of Laura's defiance of kind of Bob uh, and then her sort of ascension into what might be the White Lodge or, you know, the, her encounter with the angel. It seemed to me very much in keeping with that, you know, and it, and it seems like Fire Walk With Me, yeah, Fire Walk With Me and I think Lynch's sense of, you know, who Laura was and her relationship with Bob in that movie seems to be as important, uh, more important probably than a lot of other things that happen in seasons one and two at Twin Peaks. And I thought the movie did a great job of making us feel that way. I, I so far, I got to say that's the, the bringing Laura and Bob back into it for this season. I, I probably, I might've been happy. I mean, we'll have to see what happens. I think I would have been happier though. If the, there was just no mention of either of them. Maybe it's like vague, you know, recollections or anything, but I'm not sure how I'm going to feel with if Laura comes back and becomes this extremely pivotal, pivotal character to whatever happens next. I don't think Lynch needed to do that, but I'm, I'm trusting him to see what he'll do next. But Lynch is pretty sentimental about some of these actors, and there's practical considerations right. too, right? Like Cheryl Lee uh, is alive, obviously. Um, although that hasn't being dead hasn't stopped many that isn't people from an appearing. Impediment. Yeah, exactly. But Cheryl Lee is alive. Uh, she looks great, and she needs the money. Apparently, she had some health problems and a series of reversals. And I think that to the extent he was getting people paid by uh, episode appearance, which would be kind of a standard thing. Who knows how they structured this thing? Uh, it, you know, it's good that he could get her into as many episodes as possible he gets her in the credits when just her photo appears which is great. oh really yeah so she was right. in the credits of this episode yeah yeah wow yeah she's in the credits yep. of every episode because her face appears in the uh, yep. a very opening credits yeah wow i didn't realize that and this episode threw away my friend dustin what i thought was a really great theory about the glass box which was that audrey became this super successful um kind of a you know shoulder pad feminist uh, captain of industry and it was it's her that was uh, financing the glass box in New York, but it looks pretty clear that that's a uh, bad coup now. Yeah. Yeah. They, they yeah, could they be could working be together and they could have spawned. Oh, I think that Richard. is so clear. Yes. I think that is definitely. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, still, unfortunately we, I don't think there's any way to dodge that anymore. Yeah. I'm still angry about that implication. And obviously we've, we've talked plenty about that. And Kyle, you had the idea about billionaire Audrey Horn way back. So that's, that's not unique. I mean, maybe she's part of the, uh, Mr. C's international ring of uh, Brazilian drug dealing or something. Maybe she's been turned into a wooden box somewhere in a South American country. Okay, so where are we? Uh, Jerry Horn, he's in the woods. You can't fool me. I've been here before. And uh, Jerry Horn is still lost in the woods. I I have a theory about what's about to happen, and I want to put it on the air 
so I can be proven genius if it happens. I think that he is somehow going to rendezvous with Bobby and the sheriff at rap at the Rabbit's Palace or Jack Rabbit's Palace. That is why I think he, they they have him out there lost in the woods. That seems perfectly tenable to me. I think that's a very good theory and can completely happen. Yeah, like actually. Like pop out of the pool of oil in Glastonbury Grove in that scene where Hawks out in the woods at night. And that could. I yeah, think that this, it, this that whole season, everything plot wise, seems for Twin Peaks surprisingly very deliberate. Like it really seems like they knew exactly where they wanted to go, and every step of the way so far, it doesn't seem like. I think that in the the, the first two seasons, the network, the way network television worked at the time, was I think they were kind of like flying by the seat of their pants writing episodes. So sometimes they would, you know, kind of improvise a lot of plot turns and twists. This, it seems like Lynch and Frost really knew exactly, like, they're, everything seems very deliberate that's happening. So. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe if, maybe if Jerry Horn is a part of this process and them getting together in whatever other place it is, maybe Jerry Horn's not foot and Mike's former now evolved arm can have a conversation, you know, limb to limb. I, I, we can only. I, I, I love we can only hope. The, uh, the I'm not your foot. I thought it was fantastic, and uh, I honestly hope it's only. It, it, it does not turn out that that is a a sign that Jerry has become possessed by. Anything. I just. I really wanted to just be that he has some. Uh, he had some bad shit. Oh no! I, I take the foot. The not foot at its word. <laughs> I don't believe it's Jerry Horn's foot. I totally. Buy I think that. he just got some bath salts or something. That that's my theory. <laughs> He's mixing. He's mixing. <laughs> That's a possibility. Some sparkle. Well, what I think that Jerry and probably Ben need to get their groove back are a flight to France and some butter and breeze sandwiches. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Right. I, that would be one. I, I I was actually looking for one of those sandwiches in Brooklyn recently. A place that was supposed to have them did not have them. Has anyone had a butter and breeze sandwich? I'm dying to have one. They made not. it look so delicious. In oh that, yeah, of course. Episode. Yeah, def- yeah, they did. Yeah, they're great. I was just going to say about the "I am not your foot" scene that I was I was talking about this last week with a friend of mine who has never done any drugs, and he said that the "I am not your foot" scene with Jerry Horn for the first time made him really understand what <laughs> well, it would be yeah, like to be high. Yeah, that's pretty much how you feel after a few tokes of, uh, <laughs> of weed. You definitely, you definitely hear things. <laughs> and clearly, uh, this must. Whatever Jerry got, that sparkle or whatever, it must be very strong because, you know, presumably Jerry is one who is regularly, you know, using high powered industrial strength hydroponic, you know, weed products on a regular basis. It's interesting how the Horn brothers are both so, they're, they're, they seem to have a, a kind of goodness to them that I don't really recall from the original. But I guess, I guess for Ben Horn ended the series as a, like an environmentalist, right? He was woke. Well, it was weird. I mean, because he had to, in order for him to get woke, he had to be General <laughs> Robert E. Lee uh, and, and snap out of that and then realize that he wasn't going to make any money off the Ghostwood Estates uh, uh, thing. And, you know, he ended up being born again as an environmentalist. And then he ended up bashing the shit out of Doc Hayward's head uh, <laughs> with his uh, patrimony. Uh, confrontation what happened where how did jerry end up in season two i can't even recall him towards the tail end of the season yeah he was in jail i remember he had that wasn't he practicing law as well in defense of his yeah his brother yeah that's right uh last in his class at gazanga university school of law uh and while he was in the jail cell trying to help his brother he was reading 
criminal law in a nutshell, which is hilarious for anybody who's uh, been to law school. Because nutshells are like these little tiny treatises that, you know, describe some area of the law and, and on a very, very basic, basic level. So if that's what your lawyer is reading, uh, basically, you're, you're totally screwed. And I, I, I might be jumping ahead a bit. But yeah, I mean, kind of in reference to, you know, Ben Horn at the end of season two, and the revelation that, you know, seemed pretty unequivocal that he was probably Donna Hayward's uh, dad. Uh, and I think one of my only ways out of this Richard Horn is Audrey Horn's son scenario, uh, which I think we're pretty much <laughs> led into uh, in this episode was that perhaps Richard Horn is Donna Hayward's son. <laughs> that she, <laughs> and that this, and this on some level was David Lynch's revenge on Laura Flynn Boyle for not being in Fire Walk with me in 1992. Uh, I love every part of that theory. I, yeah, I absolutely. Yeah. I don't no, think I, I can actually no part of make that, it that I'm not. Yeah. No, I totally propose yeah, that. Yeah, but I'm I'm going to believe it. Yeah, I'm going to believe it for now, though. Until we know. Yeah. Yeah. Adrian was asking me about that. She was like, oh, this really confirms that awful Audrey Horn hypothesis, right? And I was like, well, there is a way around it. There could be this Donna Hayward thing. And maybe what happened was uh, she gave him up because he was terrible, even from a really young age. And he was raised by Ben Horn. And that's why he didn't have, like, whatever his father's last name was or, you know, Donna Hayward's name. Because she would have kept the name Hayward, right? So would this mean that Donna Hayward and James Hurley are the real parents? Yeah. of Richard Horn. By the yes. way, when are we going to see yeah. James? Yeah. He's so that terrible. Terrible. I actually James that early. scene early yes. on in the, in the season, yeah. in the at the end of the second episode, with James has always been cool. That really made me think that we were going to get to see more of him. For the, no, for the record, I am a James. Had exactly apologist. the right James amount of him. Love James. I'm sorry. I'm just going to say it. James has never been cool. No, Jesus James has Christ. always been. cool. James has never been cool, and Richard Horn has never been cool. Biker so poet. clearly, it's his son, Connor. I'm glad. <laughs> Unbelievable. I'm glad you're on here, Connor, because I was the only person who, uh, of the panel Thank who you. stuck up for for James uh, at the James end of uh, episode two. So yeah, yeah. So it looks like if you piss off David Lynch, uh, he'll either make you the mother of Richard Horn or turn you into a brain tree. Michael J. Anderson was never going to be in it though, because remember one of the last things the man from another place said no. was, "The next time you see me," he says something like, "Next time you see me, I won't be me." So. David Lynch knew that he was going to become an anti-Semitic nut job, and he kind of uh, he knew that way back he when. Right. He was prepared. But by the way, can we just say he wanted his revenge on Laura Flynn Boyle? But did he have to take it out on Maura Kelly, who could have easily come back and played Donna and would have been fine? So, what did you all think of Maura Kelly as Donna? Oh, she's she was a great Donna. Maura Kelly, a way better Donna. That was that was a recasting that worked out well for everybody. Um. I- I prefer Maura Kelly as an actress, but I'm I'm always resistant to recasting. Uh, I'd always rather go with the original, even if I don't like the original better. Okay, I can respect that. You're you're talking about the shim yes, effect. That, yeah, that's absolutely right. Yes. Yeah, I like Maura Kelly as an actress. Fine, she's terrible in that role in Firewalk with Me. I, rewatching it just before we did the beginning of this podcast, I I was struck by how much it, it still bothered me. She's just she just isn't devious enough. She doesn't have that flash in her eyes that some some little part of Laura Palmer's um, really depraved life is appealing to her. And the whole point of Firewalk with Me is that Donna Hayward gets kind of into the depraved life part of Laura Palmer and it just doesn't work at all I, at all I, I thought it was, she was great well she just hadn't worn Laura's sunglasses yet oh that's true <laughs> I vote Maura Kelly 
By the way, this new season just makes me love Firewalk with me all the more. And I think it's helping it get its due. Did you see Criterion announced it is going to be a release in individual uh, Blu-ray package? Yeah, Ken Ken uh, took great delight in pointing that out to me because David Lynch hasn't gotten enough of my damn money over the last quarter of a century. He's got to make me buy these things in every new format that gets devised. For a guy who doesn't like advancing technology, he really, really wants to sell me this in every possible format. And I don't think there's going to be anything new. I actually had a tour of the Criterion Collection a few weeks ago, and they were had up on the wall. They had different um, cover art they were considering for Fire Walk With Me, and I really wanted them to go with the one they did didn't go with which was similar to the the poster they released but instead of the picture of laura it was a blue rose and i think that would have been really fantastic Ooh, yeah 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 i think i think it has a like a new interview with cheryl lee uh, and a couple other new things but a lot of it is uh the same stuff that was if you had the you know the blue the entire mystery blu-ray that okay. had the missing pieces on it it's a lot of the same stuff but i think there are a couple of new things that criterion's putting on it the but missing we'll, pieces are surprisingly relevant to this season I, my like, theory my theory is that the missing pieces while editing that and working yeah. on that is when David Lynch got a lot of the ideas and kind of the motivation to go back and do season three, do the return. And, and kind of in the process of working on that is where the ideas started really coming together for this new season. I would bet you're right because, you know, watching them recently, there, there's a lot of post-production work that was done on them. Like the, um, the even things like the, there was a little CGI effect when David Bowie reappears in the, the Argentina the hotel and everything. So yeah, I think that he really worked pretty hard on, on bringing those scenes back. So I think, I think you're probably right. Well, and he got it together to film an awful lot of stuff with people who were deceased by the time showtime had right. greenlit this thing. So obviously he was working on it a while back. Um, Is anyone here holding on to the theory that maybe just maybe David yes. Bowie? Absolutely. Yes, absolutely. Before yes. he died. Oh yeah, I am. Harry, Harry goes in an interview claimed that, he was set to do something, but his health took a turn for the worse. But D- David Lynch strikes me as someone who, he, if he did get a little bit of David Bowen film, I can't imagine he would have told anyone else on the cast. Right. And it would have been like a one-on-one yeah. thing. So I'm really hoping – because because it's it's weird, but at the same time, I could see that when he was developing it, Bowie's health might not have been so bad. So he's like, oh, I'm going to have Philip Jeffries be a major character. And then when it was time to actually film, you know – it took a turn for the worse, but I would I would be heartbroken if we don't get to see David Bowie as Philip Jeffries one last time. Of course, we do see an imposter Jeffries in the series, right? Right. Yeah, and I wonder if that was that was written in when he knew that he found out he couldn't get him back because the, I think that's right. my guffin right. to lead us off the trail of Bowie's appearance. Why would they? <laughs> yeah. Oh, you think that's what it is like to throw yes. throw us off the trail? That would be if he had the last footage of David Bowie performing that would be pretty fucking amazing but would he not why would he not oh, announce not, that because uh, yeah they're trying to yeah, they're trying he, to sneak it by us oh no I, I mean lynch himself you know in the trailers you saw on showtime says that about you know when people are asking him of course as ken has pointed out he never gives a straight answer to any question about anything he's he is doing or has done and what he said was you know keep your eye on the donut not on the hole and i i think i think he's trying to make his focus on the hole by not telling us david bowie's going to be in it i mean that would be very much like him True. We know that Moby said he was asked to right. sign a non-disclosure for this season, and he's he was not listed on the cast uh, release, and right. he was in this last episode. So yeah, I really hope so. I also hope Kiefer Sutherland makes an appearance. I gotta say, I, I that he is one of the best performances in Firewalk with Me. I gotta say. Yeah, I think what I what I heard 
besides Kyle MacLachlan, I think almost every other actor, actress involved in the new season yeah. only got their scenes and right. didn't get anything else and had to sign non-disclosure agreements. Yeah. Okay. So moving along with this episode, what happens next is Chad and Lucy are in the police department. Chad has been tasked by Richard Horn with intercepting the letter that Miriam wrote to the sheriff. So he engages with Lucy for a minute, having a donut at the counter. But then when he sees the mail carrier arrive, he goes outside and tries to be all sneaky, uh, taking the mail and then, you know, stealthily putting it in his shirt. Uh, Lucy is watching though, and it's unclear whether or not she sees him absconding with the letter. I have something to say about this. Yes, yeah, several people kind of Twin Peaks obsessive pointed out that, okay, um, the letter that Chad intercepts is uh, from a Miriam Hughes. Uh, and in the cast listing for this episode and for the other episode in which she appeared, I think episode six, Sarah Jean Long is credited as a Miriam Sullivan. Um, so perhaps he got, you know, this could be an embarrassing continuity error, or it could be that Chad just got the wrong letter uh, from the wrong Miriam. Uh, so I, I hope that is, uh, the case and that that wasn't just an error, but in fact that, and also, yeah. And then I think as we talked about earlier, Miriam did say she wrote the sheriff, not necessarily, you know, to the sheriff at the police station. It's a small town. She could know, you know, uh, Frank or Harry's home address. Uh, so I'm hoping that her letter finds its way. All I have to add is the last time somebody tried to hide papers at the Twin Peaks Sheriff Station, Deputy Hawk ripped it open with a crowbar, and I hope that happens to Chad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chad will be hoisted by his own petard 25 years from now. It'll be fine. His crime will be totally found right, out. Right, exactly. <laughs> so, moving on with the story, for the second time this episode, Richard Horn demonstrates that unlike the mystery man in Lost Highway, he uh, does have a custom of going where he has not been invited. Uh, he is coming to grandma's house. Uh, Sylvia and Johnny Horn uh, live in a house in the suburbs. It's. Did anybody else think that Johnny Horn looked like the James Bond villain Jaws with his like metal in his mouth? Oh yeah, I was wondering what's going on. Is it wired shut? Yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, it's like it's like they've covered everything that he could possibly hurt himself with. Yeah, he's he's tied up. Uh, he's got a helmet on. He's tied to the chair that he's sitting at, and he's he's sitting at this table with this Teddy Ruxpin, this this uh this like teddy bear that talks, but instead of, it's been decapitated, like so many other folks in the show, and instead of its head, it's got this sort of like plastic or glass dome with this weird, crudely drawn face on it. That you know, I caught the connection uh, directly to. This cartoon, eight part cartoon series that David Lynch made called Dumbland. If you look for it online, you can find it. Uh, it's, it's, it's really, really gross and crude, uh, and surprisingly entertaining. Has anybody else seen anybody make that connection between Dumbland and this episode? Only you, JR. I, yeah, only you. It's a good, it was a good pickup. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty obscure piece of uh, Lynchology, but uh, it's definitely there. It's worth checking out as, you know, really messed up as the cartoon is. Uh, I watched a few. I've seen it, and I'm a, I'm, I'm a massive fan of Dumbland. <laughs> uh, yeah. I find it un, 
unbelievably funny, especially the Get the Stick episode, which is a, is a classic. And I don't know. I know that Lynch's really absurd, stupid humor is not to everyone's taste, but I think it is at its finest in Dumbland. And I will go on the record as a deep and committed fan. Yeah, I would cautiously uh, recommend it. Um, I particularly enjoyed the eighth episode uh, where the protagonist antagonist uh, goes into a fugue state after inhaling a bunch of bug spray. Uh, It's uh, it's great. (laughs) Basically, the the main character of the show is this like hulking guy whose most frequent line is "What the fuck." Uh, and his mouth and face look almost exactly like the face of the, you know, hello, Johnny, how are you today? Uh, machine that was sitting on that table. Uh, yeah, I, I'll, the picture, if you look at it, it's, it's very striking in its resemblance. Maybe that should be our background images. <laughs> it's, yes. <laughs> and it's the second thing in that episode that looks like it's almost certainly was, well, we know one of them was, but it looks like David Lynch's cartooning style. Cause there's the uh, little right. spike dog he draws later. So, the angriest dog in the world. Yeah, the the, the animation, the, the drawing style is exactly like the figure that Gordon draws later. So, do we want to do we want to talk about the sheer horror of this scene? Yeah, definitely. It was a intense and difficult scene to watch, but uh, very well done. Oh, it's it's kind of like the perfect kind of Lynch Lynchian moment in that it combines something truly horrific with something that's meanly it's like there's a certain absurdity that makes you want to laugh but it's actually so horrible that you feel rotten for laughing at the one aspect it's like it's basically just total dissonance and it's like four or five different very strong emotions happening like the hello johnny how are you today and combined with the absurdity of being tied up in that chair but also, the he, you know, the son looks like he's in horrible pain. That he can't help. It's just, it's just such a strange mix of emotions that it, it, it makes you feel really weird and and kind of it's very off putting. But Jeff, you made the astute observation that this is a real direct allusion to the gang rape scene in Clockwork Orange, which I think is very apt. Yeah, and so much of the focus on it, you know, kind of as in the, you know, kind of home invasion, you know, rape sequence in A Clockwork Orange is on the helplessness of one of the, you know, yeah. of two of the characters here, both Sylvie and Johnny, who are utterly unable, you know, to do anything about it. And that's really, in large part, what we focus on uh, in the scene. I mean, you see Richard kind of going through the safe and the jewelry box and stealing things, but so much of it is on these l- prolonged scenes of kind of Johnny and Sylvia being helpless. Uh, and then uh, besides the clockwork orange, other thing I was going to point out, and I did check on this, um, the song that plays in this uh, scene is Charmaine by Montavani and his orchestra. And this, I believe, is the yeah. music that is constantly piped into the hospital in One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Oh, right. interesting. But yeah, I thought it, I thought it worked really, really well. Over, and like as a scene, I mean, it's obviously something that's hard to watch, but it it, it kind of made me realize that you know, Lynch hasn't lost any of his ability to to kind of pull off you know kind of horrific things like that. Yeah, very uncomfortable. Make you incredibly uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but 
to what end, though, is is sort of the question, right? I mean, I guess what this scene mostly made me think of was that one sociopath determined enough to push his way through all the flimsy norms that hold our society together can accomplish an awful lot of damage in a very short time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I just we've talked a lot this week on our uh, between ourselves about the difference between this and the premiere episode of the Game of Thrones. And I was saying that Game of Thrones in the past has used sexual violence and exploitation of women uh, as a cheap crutch, and that it was pretty unforgivable because that show had kind of a nihilist viewpoint, whereas old Twin Peaks didn't. And we talked a lot earlier in this uh, in a, er, earlier episodes of this podcast about how there isn't this countervailing good force anymore to balance out all the nihilism. So it's like we're sort of on on Robin watch, we're looking out for the Robins at the end of Blue Velvet, right? Uh, whether it's Cooper returning or whether it's um, uh, Gordon in the good Cooper kind of a role, the FBI that we're getting in this show or what it is, but it's just not there powerfully enough for me to feel like the battle between good and evil is anywhere close to even at this point, which just makes it really tough. It just feels like it's that same kind of nihilist viewpoint where everybody is really awful and people who just want bad things badly enough can just have them. I see what you mean. There's something about a narrative that something like Fargo, it can go into human depravity as long as there's this countervailing force of Marge. And that's kind of the role Cooper played is that we can, or Kyle McLaughlin's character in Blue Velvet, which is he's this innocent, he's really, you know, we really like him and care about him. He's very good. And so is Laura Dern's character. So it enables us to go down to the 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 hole into yeah, exactly. Frank Booth's whole world. And you're right that, that, that there isn't that sense of, of a of a of a goodness anchoring our 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 you know our consciousness in 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 this season. So yeah, this is this is more like Breaking Bad or you know something where everybody's an antihero. The Fargo parallel is exactly right though. The mission statement of Fargo the last couple seasons has been to show us where or actually I would say seasons 1 and 3 especially of Fargo has been to show where people dedicated to flout de- flouting the norms of good and social behavior can ruin everything just by being determined to tear everything down. And it really does take the Carrie Coons of the world and um, Alison Tolman's of the world to give us somebody to root for against all that darkness. I think that's exactly right then. And that's what I have in mind every time I watch Fargo. So that's that. And in the last, I was going to say the last episode of the last season of Fargo is basically questioning is someone, is, is the bad guy going to be able to get away with it? Is society going to, excuse him because he's wealthy so that was actually the darkest moment yet right uh and anton chigurh is the same too right in, yeah, in no definitely. country anton chigurh yeah. is that figure too i was i was just gonna say i i still think it's too early to say whether or not that countervailing force is, is totally absent it has been in a lot of the episodes so far but i also feel like the show in lots of different ways has addressed that and made it explicit that uh you know, I, I, we're living in a dark age, I think, as Janie E says. Uh, and then at the end of this episode, you know, the log lady um, is talking about, you know, electricity's humming, but the glow's fading and what's going to kind of fight the darkness. And I think in one of the earlier episodes yourself, Ken, uh, you know, you talked about how it seems like uh, we're talking about the mythology, but we go through periods in which either the White Lodge or the Black Lodge is ascendant. And it seems like 
since, you know, I'm not sure exactly when, but we could say perhaps Cooper's, uh, you know, the, the, the entrance of, of bad Cooper's, uh, you know, the, the doppelganger into the world that the Black Lodge has been ascended. And I, I still think we're going to see a balance to that in some way. Um, I don't think it'll come without losses, but I, I think that and uh, what you were kind of interested mentioning earlier, Connor, all the kind of explicit, more explicit than in earlier Twin Peaks or even earlier Lynch, uh, explicit kind of references to uh, the world of the 2010s. I think that kind of sense of a dark age, a corrupt age, a decayed age uh, in some way uh, is, is at the root of a lot of those sociological references, I guess. So, yeah. Yeah. And Jeff, I, I, I agree with everything you just said. And, but Ken, I would just add about this scene, at least this was one scene in which you literally could understand the silverware. Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's fair. That's that's one of our good catchphrases that they were paying homage to, just like when they named that radio station after us. Exactly. That's good of, of Lynch. Yeah. I, I want to give you a, a cause for optimism, though. If you remember one of the three trailers they aired for this new season, there is a shot of Cooper in his black suit driving a car and looking in the rear room rear view mirror so either dougie learns how to drive a car successfully or agent cooper will come back at some point so or bad coop got a haircut oh (laughs) oh that's a good point maybe he's he's in disguise but his face wasn't all leathery and tanned that's true and we couldn't i I don't remember if his eyes were blacked out in that uh trailer moving along uh, the, the next scene is at the office of duncan todd duncan calls his assistant Roger into the room and sort of lays out in a very expositional fashion uh, his scheme to get Dougie. Uh, We know that Mr. C, Bad Coop, had called him and told him that he had to take care of it before the next time he called. This seems like a really roundabout way to go about uh, getting Dougie killed. It's unclear why he's sort of trying to lay this elaborate scheme whereby Tony tells the Mitchum brothers that, uh, that Dougie is the one that cheated them out of their $30 million loss, which was based on a fraud in the first place. Uh, and that that is going to trigger the Mitchum brothers, uh, desire for revenge on Dougie such that he'll die. Uh, it just seems really indirect to me, not very efficient or reliable. If what you want to do is have somebody killed. Well, the Mitchums do have that extra murder money that's been freed up by them not having to order a hit on Ike. So I think it makes sense to go to them because they got the working capital to go put out to go whack somebody else. But do they have an incentive to kill? Do they have the incentive to kill Dougie as as quickly as Duncan Todd needs Dougie killed? If I was Duncan Todd and worked for someone like Mr. C at this point, I've come to the conclusion I need to just do it myself instead of hatch this elaborate scheme. Or send Roger. Or Duncan could do it himself. I don't think Duncan Todd likes to leave that desk, though. We've never seen him anywhere else, uh, and I don't think he likes to leave that desk. And I also suspect all this, right. you know, is this, uh, you know, the thirty million dollars and the arson claim and so forth is probably I, you know, don't know anyone who's gone back and looked the episodes, but tied in in some way to you know when Dougie was drawing his his ladders and his childish scribbling on things when he was doing his work right. uh, at the at Lucky Seven uh, probably ties in with all that because we did see. I think the Mitchum brothers' names and uh, Anthony Sinclair's names kind of all over that paperwork. And Tony did lie about an arson claim. But 
The way that he lays out this scheme is very wooden in a way that several things in this episode seem to be. It seems like when we get to points where there's going to be a lot of exposition or even where they're putting pieces in place that we predicted they would an episode or two ago, people deliver the news very robotically, right? Like my, what is it? Business rivals and bitter enemies. It's a very odd thing, (laughs) right? right? It's like he's reading it from a dramatis personae or something, right? You know well that these two characters, my business rivals and bitter enemies, like that's very strange and expository. I don't, I don't know what to make of it. He's like, you remember what I told those guys, those jokers? You know, there seems Lynch doesn't seem to be put off by that kind of um, stilted expository dialogue. (laughs) Or by off-kilter acting. We've talked a bunch about how people, he doesn't really like to retake things for for weird or stilted acting. And I think sometimes he probably encourages it. I wanted to sing the praises separately of Naomi Watts, who's really leaned into it and and been great in a way that uh, just this week reminded me of my old favorite Constance Towers from a bunch of Sam Fuller movies and other things. And uh, people, especially my wife, who uh, studied theater and knows how to coach, like, good acting, right, traditionally good acting, are put off by her because she's so odd and off-kilter. And I just like her because she brings a different approach to the whole craft. And uh, Watts kind of reminds me of that in this performance. But other people come off as kind of like like they're in a Tommy Wiseau film. Or well, the way Lynch casts people is kind of strange. He he just looks at their, their casting photo and calls them in and has a conversation right, with right. them. He doesn't ask them to read things. So I think that's how you end up in weird situations like um, you know, Leo being played by his casting director's son. You yeah. know? Uh, he, he just Frank he calls people Bob. in and he gets along with them, has a good rapport with them. Or He's, he, he casts them. Or Frank Silva as Bob. Right. Yeah, or Brett Gelman, who was... Uh, yeah, Frank Silva. Or Brett Gelman was Johanna Ray's neighbor in L.A. And she was just like, hey, you want to come be in this thing that I'm casting? We'll just tell Lynch you're in it. He's like, okay. Or how we end up with, you know, Billy Bob Cyrus in Lost Highway. It's a brilliant casting. Oh, hey, that that's a that is great casting right there. It's it you know, this is something I actually kinda want to talk about. And this is something that um it's it, it's strange because I I'm I'm a total cinephile. And the weird thing about David Lynch movies is that, that they don't really obey the same laws of cinema that other great directors do like david lynch doesn't seem to be out to make a great movie or a great film he's interested in in texture in the way things look on the screen the way things move he's not really interested in getting a quote-unquote great performance yeah if that makes any sense and and that's kind of similar to a director like um i might be mispronouncing his name but uh robert brisson who directed uh, a bunch of very famous French movies, but they're they're all really notorious for this kind of strange, stiff acting. Um, he directed uh, *L'Argent*, uh, *A Man Escaped*, and it's it's similar in that he didn't he cast *Pickpocket*. Yeah, and he cast non-professional actors, and he just kind of had them mumble their lines and be. It's Lynch is kind of like that too, and it takes some getting used to. And he's kind of the same way with camera work. There's some shots in this season that are are breathtakingly brilliant. And there's other shots that it's just bizarrely amateurish. And I I just don't think he cares about the same language of cinema that other people do that I do. And sometimes I, I to be honest, sometimes I don't really know how to feel about that. Because uh, sometimes it kind of strikes me as awkward. It's kind of strange to watch a show like this last season of Fargo, where digital cinema 
is used there to, to make everything look enriched and richer than film, in, in, you know, you might say. But here, Lynch is intentionally, it's not because he's trying to save money. He wants to, to light shots extremely brightly, really garishly, with high contrast. And um, it's very strange, you know. It's, it doesn't look like other movies or other shows. So, yeah, sometimes it's 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 a it has a I see the effect he's going for. Other times I don't know how to feel about it. And I think a lot of that has to do, you know, that he came to it from a different direction of being a painter and a visual artist first and I think, you know, there's a quote from, you know, when he did I think his first films The Alphabet or Six Men Getting Sick, one of those where he said he just wanted paintings that moved, you know, and that was sort of like his impetus for 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 his first uh, attempts at, at filmmaking and I think there's he is a narrative um, filmmaker, but then uh, there was a great thing I watched a few weeks ago that I think you can find on YouTube, and it's like a BBC Arena like documentary from 1987. It's Lynch showing for an hour long, showing clips from all these surrealist films, um, you know, like stuff by like Max Ernst and all these you know things, and just kind of sitting in a movie theater in LA right after you know Blue Velvet uh, you know premiered uh, that kind of era talking about these films and he says a really interesting thing at the beginning of it where he sort of one of the reasons he says he likes surrealist cinema is there's a story on it but then underneath it there's this whole subconscious kind of world sort of going on and he says this very sort of david lynch uh, description of it but he says that he always wants something going on underneath his films and that's what he's really interested in and i think that might you know he uh have something to do with why his films have the weirdness about them that i think you're you're talking about connor yeah, it's just it's it's uh it it it's just very striking, particularly with the the cinematography being the way it is. It it, it kind of makes me understand. It makes you see that he's always actually kind of always been like this. It's just before there's maybe a more conventional cinematic look to what he was doing. You know, think of I think uh, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say think of Balthazar Getty's performance in Lost Highway, which is not exactly a a classically great performance versus his, I would say, pretty great performance in uh, as Red in uh, this season. But yes. yeah, he just doesn't. Yes. He just doesn't care about the, these things. And yeah. uh, friend of the show, by the way, Balthazar Getty, friend of the show. Yeah, Balthazar Getty. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two things. I mean, I think Ken has a name for what? what do you, porniness is that what you have for this kind of amateurish quality, especially in this in the new Twin Peaks? Uh, but also, I would say that. Lynch has also gotten some astonishing performances, and I would kind of put, you know, Shirley in Twin Peaks Fire Walk With Me, Naomi Watts in Mulholland Drive, and Laura Dern in Inland Empire up there with some of the best performances I've ever seen in film. So Yeah, yeah I'd say so. Yeah, he has had some really great performances. But there are other performances, yeah, just it doesn't seem like he's as interested in or that, yeah, just are, right. just are weird. And I mean, it's... it's uh, it, I'm kind of wondering where it's going to go with the appearance of... of you know the characters like Audrey, who, yeah, I I I'm glad we're talking about this because I don't think enough people have kind of really gotten into the how strange the the Lynch aesthetic has has manifested itself in in Twin Peaks season three. And I'd also like to say that I think Kyle MacLachlan is giving the performance of his life this oh, season yes. as Dougie and Bag Cooper and probably Agent Cooper, like next level, uh, you know, that career is definitely best. A, he, should get, he should get he should get Emmys for Best Actor and Best Supporting Actor in the same series. I actually I'm really liking Jim Belushi. 
I gotta say, I'm not. I'm, this is not a joke. Yeah, I think Jim Belushi is underrated as an actor. I, I've said it. I'm, yeah, I, I think it's true. I didn't want to like him in this role. I, I thought the idea of Jim Belushi in something by David Lynch was just offensive to my sensibilities. But yeah, I, in spite of myself, I am I am liking Jim, Jim Belushi. Belushi he well. brings it every time. I, I I'm not even kidding. And that David Simon miniseries, Show Me a Hero, he's fantastic in it. He's fantastic in Michael Mann's Thief. Yeah, no, Jim Belushi's great, but I think there are a few more things to talk about in this episode still. <laughs> sorry. I'm sorry if I'm getting everyone sidetracked. This was the shortest episode of the season so far, and it might be the yes. longest podcast. We'll see. So we go to the Mayfair Hotel. Yes. There's a uh, woman with a French flag, I think. No, it's it's French. Walking by, yeah. And Constance and Albert are having a sweet moment while uh, Gordon and Tammy watch. You know, there's red roses here. We saw... We saw red roses in Denise Bryson's office when Gordon went to see her. Uh, they're also sitting in red chairs in front of red drapes while they're eating. And, and as a Constalbert uh, shipper, I'm all in favor of this scene. And this is, this is the robins coming home to roost in this, scene, in this episode for me. Okay, and so we go from the Mayfair Hotel to the Silver Mustang Casino where Rodney and Brad are back in the control room. Candy and the other showgirls are now, again, a cup against the wall. Tony has arrived, and Rodney notices him as that insurance fuck and wonders what he's up to. And they send Candy uh, down to get him. Candy doesn't want to go. She's very reluctant, but she does finally go down there. And she goes down, and it's it's hilarious because she starts like almost telling some sort of like picture story. Uh, we don't know what she's saying, but we see her through... Uh, the video camera feed of the casino floor. And she's like pointing around the room and making various hand motions. Uh, it's really hilarious. And when they come up, uh, Rodney and Brad ask Candy, what, what, what were you talking about? And Candy and Tony confirmed that she was explaining the casino's air conditioning system. <laughs> Which is, uh, I, Ironically, I remember thinking, oh, that makes sense. Because the last time we saw, I don't know about you guys, I, I'd never been to Las Vegas. I was kind of struck by how high the uh, high temperatures were listed on the weather report. So when she was... It's but a dry, it's a dry heat. <laughs> what she said, what she, said she was dry heat. for the AC in, in a weird way. It kind of made sense to me. By the way, the return of Tom Sizemore. How beautiful is that? Connor, I don't understand. What, what, what do you mean? Do you guys not... Oh, you don't know about this? Oh, my God. No, no, I don't. Oh, major problem. So Tom Sizemore goes from appearing in uh, movies, you know, Oliver Stone movies, uh, supporting role in Steven Spielberg film, Michael Mann, to a uh, hardcore drug problem, making a porn movie, and going to jail. So it's been a very rough past, God, I'd say 17 years for Tom Sizemore. Well, and the real bummer of it was that in the jail cell, his consciousness was swapped with Balthazar Getty's. So it just didn't. <laughs> I was about to say, that sounded like a very Lost Highway right. scenario, just Tom Sizemore's actual I really, life. Oh, I was going to say, I really hope we get more um, more red soon on the Balthazar Getty note. I'm really, I've really loved his character. Oh, definitely. Friend of the show, Balthazar Getty. He's, he's yeah. doing a good job. So, Tony, anyway, he's once he's up there in the control room... He, he kind of talks like Captain Kirk, perhaps because of his uh, experience having Balthazar Getty's consciousness in his head. But he's, I'm here to tell you something that you will want 
to know about. And then he just keeps repeating, you have an enemy in Douglas Jones. And I'm not sure it's convincing. I was just because I don't think Anthony did a very good job of, yeah. of selling this. Yeah. And it, perhaps it was a Captain Kirk thing, but it seemed like he was just repeating again and again, like some of the same things Duncan Todd right. told him to say, and it did do a good job. Of- hey, Connor, speaking of Balthazar Getty uh, and Red, what do you think of my theory that Red is Miss Tremont's son, you know, who was studying magic? I fucking love that theory, and I hope to God it's true. The one thing that makes me think it's not true is didn't Miss Trafont's grandson was played by David Lynch's son, right? Just the first time. David Lynch seems like... No, there was a different actor. Yeah, but doesn't David Lynch seem like the kind of guy that he wouldn't he wouldn't cheat his son out of a role? Well, he, he didn't use his son the second time uh, he appears in Firewalk With Me. Wait, that's not the same kid? No, different kid. Well, he's wearing he's no wearing way. the pointy mask, pointy nosed mask. Oh my god! Time, I have to so that. It's not like you can really. Are you tell sure? Under it. Yeah, it is. It is. It is a different actor. Oh, Wow. Oh, that's okay. True. So before we uh, leave this important topic, is there anything we want to say about the Jumping Man or the room above the convenience store? Uh, yes, I do. One is the Jumping Man going to return. Right. Two, another. I just realized another role was recast. Jurgen Jurgen Proc now played the woods. One of the woodsmen in uh, the original. I. Could he not have gotten Jared from Proc now to come back? No, then we wouldn't have Lincoln. Kind of disappointing. We wouldn't have we wouldn't have the Lincoln yeah, guy. But getting the li- oh the getting- Lincoln guy. Oh, true, the the Lincoln guy was fantastic. So that's fine. Have we talked about the jumping man in the scene above the convenience store yet? Do you guys have any thoughts on him? I want the jumping man to return. Yeah, I, I, you know my favorite thing about the jumping man is that uh, the direction from David Lynch was to imagine himself as a vessel. <laughs> I thought he told him you're a right. talisman. Exactly. <laughs> or how you pronounce it. This is the second stanza of the This is the Water, This is the Well uh, poem. You are a vessel, you are a talisman. I, did, I just don't think anyone's mentioned it yet. I just wanted to mention it because I love the fucking Jumpin' Man. I love the Jumpin' Man too, and I hope he comes back. I, You know, I, I, I kind of wish I'd been on the episode when you guys talked about the crazy episode the black and white episode because that actually just made me realize something uh about what we talked about earlier is that episode i know it was in black and white so it's different but the cinematography there really wanted to look more uh, atmospheric and moody and uh film like in a way beyond just being in black and white so i kind of wonder if that goes back to what we were saying about the idea that we're in a, a a darker more sinister time you know I just I didn't occur to Mitchell just now. Sorry, I didn't mean to go off on another cinematography tangent. No, it's good. It's good. Uh, we appreciate the tangents. Um, yeah, so in the show, we are back at the casino or at the Mitchum residence. Uh, Ken already did his beverage corner bit about the martini confusion. And then we get this line from Rodney as they kind of talk about how this Dougie took him for Thirty thousand four hundred forty-seven thousand dollars. Rodney says, "Now I know how Brando felt," which, like, I, I don't get it. <laughs> yeah, my only reaction was, uh, "Yeah, fuck you, Michael Sarah." That was my response. Right, <laughs> right. The second <laughs> reference to Brando. But how? I mean, wh- why does he feel like Brando? <laughs> uh, was it was it something about being betrayed? You know, like Marlon Brando felt like betrayed in The Godfather. That was the only way I could make sense of it. 
But yeah, that's that's what I took it as as a Godfather reference that they were you know they were they were sold out by by somebody because they then talk about setting up a meeting and it's you know it's very much the you know let's get uh, Virgil Salazzo in here and see what he has to say and you know all that flows from that. Yeah, it's a lot less cool than the sort of mob uh, business being conducted in The Godfather, though. We burned our own casino down and the insurance didn't pay us. We got fucked by an enemy. That's exactly right, Ken. I mean, it just doesn't make any sense monetarily because it's not like if they wipe out Dougie, suddenly they're going to get the insurance money that Dougie revealed was fraudulently claimed, right? Well, speaking of counting, though, I'm not I'm having a little trouble making the math add up because they say that they've been taken by Dougie Jones for thirty million four hundred and forty seven thousand dollars. OK, thirty million for the insurance claim, four hundred and twenty five thousand for the 30 consecutive jackpots. Where's the other twenty two thousand coming from? Is, is there something is there some other reference that I'm forgetting about? Because I can't I can't come up with that unless they're charging interest. And the best I can do is that they're they're using this uh, thirty million four hundred and forty seven thousand so that the first six digits of the figure that he quotes uh, include Sylvia Horn's safe combination zero four seven. And the Giants or the Firemen's uh, numerals that he told Dale Cooper to remember four three zero. That's the only sense I can make of it. Wait, I have a theory. Okay. I have I have an idea. What when when Naomi Watts talks down the hoods to whom Dougie Jones owes money? Right. Let me get this straight. People right. are out there For playing money? games, and someone's yeah. betting on it. How much money does she does she save? Is it twenty two thousand in interest? Is that the vig on the money that uh, that Dougie owed to goons, perhaps employed by the Mitchum well, brothers? Because he owed, she, he, she was supposed to pay like around fifty, and she gave him twenty five. Right. Well, I like your theory, Ken, but it's highly unlikely the Mitchum brothers knew about this sports bet that Dougie had. How do you know? Well, because they were surprised to find out that his name was actually Dougie Jones. Hmm. Right. Mm. Oh, I see. Well, yeah. You're, so you're saying. They would know who he was before he came in and right. became Mr. Jackpots, and he was like right. a mystery to them then, you're saying. Yeah, okay. Have they been involved in any of the other hits, the multiple hits that have been out on Dougie Jones? I don't think so, no. Uh, those have all been coming from Duncan Todd and Doppel Cooper and Lorraine, and um, you know, and, and those all appear to be connected to one another. Okay, I didn't think so either. Okay, so from here, we go back to Buckhorn to Mayfair Room 1123 where Gordon Cole is drinking red wine and he's drawing with a Sharpie and he's drawing this sort of jackalope figure, spotted jackalope figure with an extremely long arm reaching out on top of it. And the style of the art, you know, I have to admit is exactly like Dumbland. Um, and I'm certain that our listeners are all going to be complaining, uh, really angry at us for introducing them to Dumbland. Uh, so that's what we have to look forward to next week. I think people are gonna love it. It's great. Dumbland people, contact me. It's okay. It's okay to it's okay to love Dumbland. Yeah, I mean, it, I, I liked it. I like Dumbland, but it's definitely an acquired taste. I think. Anyway, Gordon gets a knock at the door, and he comes to the door, and I gotta say, no scene in any movie or television show has ever physically affected me as much as it did when Gordon opened the door and there was Laura's face, Laura right there at the door talking to him. I mean, chills all over my body watching it. It was nuts. It was disturbing as hell. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
I think it's because it's so the it's so jarring between the uh, the old soft lush look of the series and the extremely present look of the new series. The new series looks like it's happening not only like in the 2010s but like right now. So it's it's a really jarring kind of sensation. So uh, yeah, it hit me the same way. Yeah, and the scene used for the that kind of like uncanny sudden flash of Laura crying, it's from Fire Walk with Me. And I think it's when Laura rushes to Donna Hayward's house and is hysterically crying. I think she just realized, you know, the connection between her, Leland, her father and Bob. And she asked Laura if she's her best friend. It just shows up, you know, at her door. But yeah, I agree. Jay was really strange, unsettling, uncanny. So it's not Laura at the door. Uh, Connor, wh- why don't you tell us who's at the door for Gordon? Just Albert delivering the news that Diane is indeed in league with Bad Coop. Yeah, so this is dark news that Diane may be in league with with Dark Coop, with Bad Coop. Of course, she doesn't know who's sending the message. It's kind of upsetting, and it kind of goes to what you said earlier about there being not the same kind of Robin's, you know, ascendant in in this universe. Even Diane, who even though we never saw her before, she was a kind of a feeling of safety and familiarity. Even she's possibly been corrupted. It makes me miss uh, Mr. Uh, Major Briggs. Unless she's somehow a double agent, <laughs> which is unclear. But yeah, I keep looking for optimistic ways out of this. Right, right. Yeah, it's very jarring. I mean, uh, it, Diane certainly seemed to be very, very distressed when she was in that cell talking to Bad Coop to now be conspiring with him. Perhaps she's blackmailing him. I mean, perhaps he's blackmailing her. Maybe. So the other things we find out here in this scene, Diane's text back to Coop or to, to Bad Coop is they have Hastings. He's going to take them to the site. Not exactly clear how she was able to figure that out at the jail, but uh, she's obviously very resourceful. Uh, Gordon says that she felt it when she hugged me, but this confirms it. And the plan is to keep Diane close. Um, the last part of the scene, Tammy comes down the hall. It seems like she's in danger I thought something was going to happen, but nothing did. She's got photographic evidence that uh, Bad Coop was there in New York at the glass box room. Uh, the photo's got the number three on it, so maybe it was, you know, from the third picture or set of pictures taken in the glass box room. Uh, so from here, we go to the Great Northern and Twin Peaks. Ben's got a call from Sylvia. It appears that Ben and Sylvia are, are divorced or separated. Sylvia wants her money, says that, you know, they're. Uh, grandson attacked us and stole all my money and she wants Ben to get the money back to her. And uh, you know, they, they basically are communicating through lawyers at this point. Uh, ben is clearly disgusted and asked Beverly to dinner after the conversation, but it's not clear if Beverly is actually there. And from here we get another log lady scene. Um, uh, Jeff, do you want to talk about it? Okay. Well, she talks, you know, she tells Hawk that there's electricity. You can kind of hear it everywhere, mountain rivers, sea stars, moon. But then she says, but in these days, the glow's dying. And she asks what will be kind of in the darkness that remains. Says the Truman brothers are true men. They'll help him. And then others, the good ones who've been with you. And then, and says now the circle is almost uh, complete. And I kind of have a suspicion here that the good ones who've been with you, 
uh, it might refer to the Bookhouse Boys, and I think we might see uh, Big Ed and James, uh, you know, as well as Frank. I don't know. I don't think we're going to see Harry at this point, but I think um, in kind of their trip to the coordinates, and I feel like Bobby Briggs is probably at this point a, a Bookhouse Boy as well. I think this will be uh, kind of co- help complete uh, the circle, and it might take Dougie Jones uh, slash Good Cooper to complete this circle as well. Um, and so then she says, you know, watch, listen, the dream of time and space, uh, says it all comes out that which is and is not. And then ends up with saying Hawk, Laura is the one. And I kind of, when I saw the title of this episode, it, you know, uh, rung a bell with me and I was able to locate, uh, if the log lady intros, uh, which I think when came on, when the show, aired uh, on Bravo, like the late 90s. Um, and I always felt like this was the closest we would actually get to uh, a David Lynch director commentary about Twin Peaks. For every episode he directed, and it's basically almost the same setup, the log lady by a fire talking in this very kind of abstract, poetic way about the episode. Uh, and uh, the first one of these for the pilot says, uh, in language it's really similar to the you know kind of soliloquy that ends uh episode 10 here she says uh talks about the mystery of the woods surrounding twin peaks to introduce this story let me just say it encompasses the all it is beyond the fire the few would know that meaning it is a story of many but it begins with one and i knew her the one leading to the many is laura palmer laura is the one and so that's how the pilot is introduced uh and then you know this the same language uh, in lots of ways in the same sentiment comes up here uh, in uh, Twin Peaks uh, season three. And again, we get this. I was surprised to hear from her again. I thought that was the last we had heard of her, you know, uh, after her second kind of phone call to Hawk, but I was, uh, I love seeing it pop back up. And this idea that Laura is the one, you know, uh, it, it's, it, it's, it's been around before. Yeah. This was my favorite part of this episode. And I mean, I might be wrong with this, but some part of me felt like it was, perhaps a dividing line of sorts, a demarcation uh, between, uh, you know, the prologue of the series before and the kind of uh, second half of it, the the conclusion of it from here on out. It might not be that way. There might just be more and more set up, but I, I kind of felt like this was uh, drawing some sort of line uh, in the sand between uh, two parts of the series. And, and Jeff, I think what, what further bolsters that, and again, I don't mean to get hung up on the colors, but I can't stop seeing them after last week. You know, the log lady sitting in a red chair. She's wearing red glasses. She's wearing what looks to be a green sweater. She's bathed in a glow that is, depending on how you look at it, either Garmin Bosia yellow or Laura Orb gold. Uh, and, and so it, you know, chromatically, it, it's, it's like we're starting to see Twin Peaks come back into balance. And when we go from the shot of the moon to the exterior of the roadhouse, we see that same pattern. We see the red neon of the sign. We see the yellow trim, uh, of the building and we see a green car parked out in front. So, you know, we're seeing that shift from the, the red pink side of things over to kind of balancing out, uh, with, with the green. And it, to me, I think this whole episode, is designed to to balance out the good and the evil, the light and the dark, the life and the death, the beautiful and the brutal. And yeah, we've seen a lot of the brutal, but I I, I agree with you, Jeff. I, I think we're seeing it start to tilt back in the other direction. And what a perfect uh, way to go from that to that Rebecca Del Rio song. That's right. We're back at the Roadhouse. Moby's playing guitar, and we've got this Rebecca Del Rio song. 
I don't know about you guys, but I absolutely love the music this season. I think it's been fantastically chosen. Yeah, I agree. It's all been really, for the most part, very good. Yeah, I love the music. I especially loved the Nine Inch Nails, but the music's been great. <laughs> the, the Nine Inch Nails was definitely the highlight. I sincerely love that performance, but yeah, but yeah, it's been, it's been great. And I think it actually, I don't think it's just uh, David Lynch, you know, indulgently including acts that he likes. I think it, the closing Roadhouse act really is a part of the story. You, know, you mentioned, uh, Ken, the Nine Inch Nails. They provided the uh, the sonic accompaniment to the Coops of Fiction. You know, last week we had Arvois Simone, a three-woman band with a three-word name, makes its second appearance in the episode that revolves around doubling and tripling, and now we have... Yeah. Rebecca Del Rio. She follows up on the log lady's warning about the fading of the light in the darkness of space, and she sings about there not being any stars. Uh, some of the lyrics are in Spanish, which is the language of Mexico and South America, to which Doppelcooper appears to have so many connections. Uh, they're sung by a singer whose whose last name is Spanish for from the river right after uh, the log lady has mentioned the river a couple of times. And finally, she's performing in front of red curtains while wearing a dress whose design uh, replicates the black and white chevron pattern of the floor of the Black Lodge. I mean, I, I think these these things are supposed to wrap things up in a way other than just providing us with a, a neat little ditty to, to, wa- to listen to while we're watching the closing credits. I think it's actually a part of the plot. Oh, you think it's part of the plot? I, yeah, maybe. I always just thought it was part of the emotional closure or sense of, of what what has been happening before. But, you know, David Lynch actually co-wrote that song with her, which I thought was really impressive. That's a, that's a pretty amazing uh, song. So kudos to Lynch, the multi-talented artist. Yeah. I thought it was also interesting that he, you know, kind of held the starring Kyle MacLachlan right. credit to almost the very, very end of this uh, performance. It seemed like it came earlier on in, in a lot of the earlier uh, songs. Uh, I was also going to say that uh, Rebecca Del Rio, you know, she sings at Club Silencio, sings a version of Gerando, uh, Roy Orbison's Crying, um, in Mulholland Drive. And the whole episode, obviously, having Del Rio sing puts Mulholland Drive to mind. But also, a lot of the Mitchum Brothers, you know, kind of sequences and the sort of mingled dread and absurdity of those, as well as, I guess, Naomi Watts uh, performance. This this episode had a more distinct Mulholland Drive for that, uh, vibe to me than uh, any of the other episodes this season. Yeah, the the Mitchum Brothers scenes are a lot like the scenes in Mulholland Drive with the you know this is the girl and spitting out the espresso in the Hollywood power broker boardroom. But yeah, I definitely agree. So that's that's the episode. Yeah, it is. What did you guys think? Did, I. I First of all, like I've mentioned this several times now, I I think that was just far and away one of the top episodes. Yeah, of the I specifically uh, specifically didn't so like it, but uh, but I also have to go. Um, so uh, I'm going to stop my recording, Jr. See you, Ken. Happy trails, Ken. Bye. Adios. Yeah, for my part, I think that I uh, more aligned with Connor. I, I really enjoyed this episode, uh, and really, I mean that just that scene of Laura at the door shook me so much that this uh, episode was significant to me. This wasn't one of my favorites, uh, oddly enough. And I feel like I'm, uh, you know, feeling differently about it from a lot of other, from you guys and from other people I've I've spoken to, but there was something a little frustrating to me, I guess, about uh, prologue. I don't know. I I think I love seven, eight, nine so much that this seemed like, you know, 
a little bit of more of an interlude, but there were, I agree, some completely great scenes. I love the log lady scene. Um, I loved, uh, the flash of kind of Laura and, you know, there, there were, there were some great things at it, but it wasn't among my favorite. Okay. So in the interest of time, I'm, let's wrap it up. Thanks so much, Connor, for joining us. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Connor. Yeah. No problem. It was a lot of fun. It's, yeah. It's fun to have a guest. So, uh, we're done with episode 10, but as an addendum here, I want to read some feedback. We've gotten some listeners. Uh, we really appreciate all the feedback we can get. And even though this has been a long episode, I, I wanted to include this because we've been getting it over weeks and I didn't want it to get stale. Um, the first feedback we have is from Lindsay of Chicago, Illinois. Uh, she says, appreciate the thoughts and comments about misogyny, but I have a different view. I see a lot of it as a reflection of how women are treated and thought of in real life, as well as their responses due to that treatment, especially categorizing a battered woman as a warrior. It's a reference to Lorraine. To me, that is a direct call out to the dismissal of domestic abuse by police or even society, rape culture in general, versus Lynch's dismissal. Uh, you know, to which I responded for my own part, just me, not speaking for the whole podcast. Uh, thanks for your comment. We agree with you, or I agree with you. Um, I personally don't think that Lynch and Frost are intentionally trying to exploit women. And I think the work does reflect somewhat intentionally the reality of misogyny in everyday life. And, you know, she's pointing out a good comment. On the other hand, as a general principle, it'd be good and less boring to see women doing things as opposed to having things done to them. And we're always looking for more of the former. Uh, Lindsay also mentioned the theory that Laura Palmer is alive and that Bob is Leland actually killed her doppelganger. And she referenced the fact that her personality was split uh, before she died, you know, meals on wheels versus a sex worker. Uh, it, she at first thought this is a response to her sexual abuse being corrupted, but the creation of a doppelganger could mirror that of a split personality. Uh, she talks about the tape to Dr. Jacoby saying she'd get lost in the woods again, perhaps a reference to going to the Black Lodge herself. Uh, she wonders how she's in the lodge and able to talk to Coop. And... If she was sent to counter Bob, fight Bob, based on episode eight, maybe that hasn't come to a head yet. Why else would Lynch tell us that part of the story now and proposes that perhaps the return is the return of Laura? I think all those are good points. we got some really interesting uh, astronomical points from Ryan of Seattle, Washington. He writes us, so after finishing episode eight, First off, thanks for making the episode better to me in the retrospect. Some thoughts that he has about the 1956 date. August 5th is extremely close to being the 11th anniversary to the bombing of Hiroshima. The origin of the wow signal that Ken described in several episodes earlier is alleged to be somewhere in the Sagittarius constellation. This constellation is also home to Sagittarius A asterisk, the place where we're very certain the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy is. Well, that's pretty cool. Uh, he notes, there are some stars in the constellation that are fairly close to Earth, as far as the galactic neighborhood is concerned, nine to ten light years away, actually. So 1956 heralded the arrival of the woodsman, which, and that could simply be because if you're traveling at the speed of light, that's how long it takes him to get here. Uh, you know, it's, it's a rough theory, but man, it's pretty cool. Um, he also notes that, uh, one of our, I think we mentioned something about owls always throwing up. And Ryan notes that's true. Owls eat rodents whole, then, like cat hairballs, yak the bones and other debris up in owl pellets. 
which, you know, gosh, that almost reminds me of like a little ball, a little golden ball. <clears throat> I've got another few uh, comments from Gus. Uh, he mentions a few things about season three. He says, if you put on a pair of headphones and go to episode six at 49 minutes, 20 seconds in, when Richard Horn pulls over to check his truck grill for the leftover kid, right as he's stopping the truck, but before the gas he gets out, he can hear the evil static noise buried in the mix. Um, he, he, he thinks that's pretty intentional based on his professional experience. I'm sure that's true. Um, he notes the, that Dougie is playing and winning one-armed bandits and wants, wonders if there's a one-armed reference there. Uh, and he notes that the use of the word missing is used emphatically by Lieutenant Knox, referring to Briggs's head, just as a log lady said something about Coop is missing. And he notes that the background lamp at Diane's in episode seven at 20 minutes, 21 minutes, six seconds in, looks an awful lot like the brass uh, or copper or Cooper ball uh, that Dougie turned into in the Black Lodge. All points worth looking at. So we, we welcome further feedback, further notes from our listeners. Uh, please rate and review us on iTunes. Uh, check out our Facebook page. Uh, like it. Get updates about it. Uh, and let us know how we're doing. Uh, this has been a very challenging episode to put together. It's coming out much later than I expected. But we appreciate your patience and we'll look forward to recording uh, episode 11 very soon. Thanks, everybody. Cold blooded old times. Cold blooded old times. Cold-blooded old times The type of memories That turn your bones to glass Turn your bones to glass Mother came rushing in She said we didn't see a thing we said we didn't see a thing And father left at eight Nearly splintering the gate Cold-blooded old times Cold-blooded old times Cold-blooded old times Cold-blooded old times Type of memories that turn your bones to glass Turn your bones to glass And though you were Just a little squirrel You understood Every word And in this way, they gave you clarity, a cold-blooded clarity. Cold-blooded old times, cold-blooded old times, cold-blooded old times. Oh, how can I stand? Laugh with the man 
who redefined your body. How can I stand and laugh with the man who redefined your body? In those cold-blooded old times, cold-blooded old times, cold-blooded old times.